This ticker podcast is brought to you by Broadridge Financial Solutions. Retail engagement, unfortunately, is not easy. It's very hard to get the retail investors engaged and to vote. You're listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine, a roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations. Here's your host, Jeff Cassette. Hi, everyone. When it comes to the proxy vote, a lot of IR teams give their retail shareholders short shrift, which is totally rational. After all, when it comes to vote outcomes, institutions dominate. They control about 70% of the market and vote about 90% of their shares. Retail investors, on the other hand, bother to vote less than 30% of their shares, which is also, you could well argue, totally rational. Thing is, all this rational mutual short shrifting may be about to come to an end. That's because retail investors' heretofore relatively puny proxy voice may soon get a lot louder. Innovations like Robin Hood have made it much easier and cheaper for the masses to get involved in the market. A massive uptick not gone unnoticed by those concerned with such things as proxy distribution costs. Meanwhile, moves are afoot to redistribute asset managers' current proxy power and reverse Trump administration restrictions on things like proxy access. The emerging zeitgeist presents a brand new communications challenge for many IROs. Fortunately, my guest today happens to know a thing or two about communicating with retail investors. For the past six years, Brandon Van Manen has been searching for ways to marry data analytics with digital communications. My team partners with corporate issuers in order to help them understand more about their shareholder ownership and how to best drive engagement within their um, retail shareholders. On this ticker podcast, Broadridge's Vice President Operations and Analytics, Brandon Van Manen, on data-driven, omni-channel retail engagement. But first, your IR News Update. Investors are getting a bit antsy about the outlook for industrials companies. More than half of the buy-siders surveyed in the latest Corbin Advisors poll expect earnings to fall. Top concerns include ongoing supply chain issues and high inflation. Still, almost 7 in 10 expect strong demand levels in 2022. The former chairman and CEO of Swedish oil and gas firm London Energy is facing charges of complicity in war crimes. Prosecutors say the company had asked the Sudanese government to secure a potential oil field, knowing all along this would mean seizing the area by force. The company says it did nothing wrong. Activists, including the heads of Greenpeace Germany, are suing Volkswagen. They're accusing the carmaker of failing to do its part to combat climate change. The claimants have given Volkswagen eight weeks to consider their demands, which include ending production of internal combustion engine cars by 2030. And finally, new research suggests that ETF assets are on a trajectory to exceed $20 trillion before 2026. 
A consultancy ETF GI's latest report shows record inflows into globally listed ETFs and exchange-traded products, $1 trillion in the year's first 10 months. Turns out retail engagement is hard. You've got to find these people. You've got to get to know them. Then you've got to target them with some kind of compelling message. Or actually, a lot of compelling messages. Consistently. Anyway, let's dive into it. Here's Brandon Van Manen. On average, um, an issuer is about a 70-30 split between institutions and the retail population. Now, you have some issuers that are on the higher end of that, where they have, you know, well over 30% um, of investors on the retail side. And those and tend to be smaller companies, right? So it, it's not necessarily. A, um, a lot of your more brand and household names tend to have a higher um, ownership on the retail front. So... Uh, Hmm. Most retail investors tend to invest in companies that they know and that they like um, compared to institutions that are, you know, they're basically, um, they're looking at the numbers and they're trying to invest um, where they think they're going to, uh, they're going to make the most money. It's fundamentally different sort of approach. Yes. Hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Which is why um, when it comes to proxy voting, you know, we like to say um, that the retail investors tend to vote with their feet, meaning that if a retail investor doesn't look favorably upon the company, they're likely not going to be a shareholder. They're just going to sell the stock. Um, they're not going to hold on to it. As opposed to an institutional investor who, again, they're not, they're not buying because they like the company. Um, so they will hold on to the stock even if they view the company unfavorably, and then they will vote unfavorably um, on different proposal matters based upon what's on the agenda. So it goes back to the fact that retail investors, <clears throat> while they don't typically vote at a high rate, when they do vote, they tend to vote favorably towards management. Mm -hmm. So that's where the real benefit to a corporate issuer is, is if you can drive engagement within those shareholders, the more of them we get to vote, typically the higher um, proposal favorability we see. So you have to get them, uh, unlike institutions, you have to get them kind of emotionally invested in, in, the, com in the company. Exactly. Okay. Um, I want to turn back to retail voting behavior, but earlier you mentioned it's kind of an uphill battle to, to drive retail, retail shareholder engagement. Um, like, can you describe that? Can you talk about that a bit? Why is that? I know, I know why I don't vote <laughs> when I get proxies because it's just it's kind of a hassle. And I, so. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's what we hear from um, a lot of retail investors. It's, you know, it's either uh, voting too complicated or... I don't own enough shares to make a difference. Um, and, you know, what we've been trying to do over the years as an industry is, one, make voting as simple as possible. Um, and we have it down to now, for instance, if you get your proxy via email, within that email, you have a hyperlink. You simply click on that. It goes right 
into the voting site and you can, you know, vote in a matter of three clicks, hmm. you know, try to make it really simple and really easy. Oh. On the other, um, the other pushback we get is I don't, um, I don't own enough shares, which, you know, it's what I'll say is a single retail investor might not make a huge difference, but if you ban them all together, we, um, we have seen several campaigns where, the voting on the retail front has ultimately um, been what has allowed management to um, to pass on their hmm. proposals. So again, you know, retail as an aggregated base can definitely have an impact. They're actually the biggest, I guess, in most cases, the biggest voting block. If you could, if you could imagine them as a monolith. Uh, yeah, and actually, so that's a great point. So, so measured by number of accounts. There are by far many, many more um, accounts on the retail side than there are institutionally. And over the past uh, past couple of years, we continue to see an increase in the number of retail accounts that are out there. In um, in 2021, we actually hit the highest number um, of retail accounts that we've ever seen, and also the largest increase um, in retail accounts that we've seen in the past at least 10 years. Wow. What's interesting about that, yeah, so there was, there was, um, there was about a 39 to 40% increase um, in the retail accounts, but there was only about a 16% increase in the retail share amount. And it ties back to there's a lot of, new investors entering the market. Um, a lot of them are entering um, through the investment app. So typically they don't have a lot of shares. Um, most of them have consented for e-delivery, but again, we are seeing um, a massive uptick in the number of accounts. To give you an idea, there was almost um, a 60% increase in the number of accounts getting their proxy materials via email in 2021 compared to 2020. So, um, so again, you know, that's really all being driven primarily um, by those apps where, you know, now someone like me that, you know, may not have um, a lot of money to invest can go on, um, you know, uh, get a fractional share um, mm -hmm. or just or just purchase a low share amount. Um, and I don't have to worry about all the fees that have historically um, been involved with buying and selling stock. I know you mentioned that retail tends to support management. Do in terms of sort of voting patterns, this this new mobile young crop of investors how in terms of their voting are they do they still vote the way they used to or or how do they uh, what differs their their sort of voting patterns from the average institutions great question so um so let's talk about the vote response first so what we have been seeing um has been a decline in the percent um of retail shares that are being voted and a lot of that seems to be driven again going back to the massive increase in the number of accounts that are getting their proxies via email. Uh, email voting um, has been on the 
decline a bit. And if you think about, you know, how many emails all of us get um, and the spam filters and everything, you know, sometimes these proxy emails tend to get lost. So, um, you know, what we'll get to later in the conversation um, are different ways that an issuer can try to make make their emails and their hard copies as effective as possible. Um, going back to vote favorability, so even um, even with the younger generation coming in, um, vote favorability um, on the retail front uh, is still high, hmm. matching back to what the issue is looking for. To give you an idea, when we talk about um, environmental and social, on average, retail vote favorability, and when I say favorability for a shareholder proposal, favorable means that they're voting favorably towards management, so that would be um, a vote against the proposal. Specifically to environmental and social, um, there's about um, a 20% delta in the average vote favorability of a retail investor compared to an Mm -hmm institution. And you don't so, see that changing, Brandon? I mean, it's kind of, uh, almost kitsch to say, but, but you assume this new crew of investors have, you know, this, these issues on their mind, but apparently they don't. It's a good point. So it's, if we, if we break down the voting on the retail side, demographically, there's definitely is, um, a bit of an uptick on the retail side for the younger investors um, caring about um, the social and the environmental issues. When we look at the voting as a percent of the total shares, a lot of those younger investors, they're not representing a large percentage of the retail shares. So if we're measuring uh, favorability by percent of shares voted, then it's pretty flat. There may be a slight uptick, but so far, you know, we haven't seen a large shift in the average favorability of that um, of the voting for uh, environmental and social. Now, again, something like that is likely going to change um, over the coming years because, to your point, uh, demographically, we do see retail investors um, uh, being more conscious of the social and environmental issues. What about on the uh, sort of um, director election side and the governance side? Director elections, it's honestly, it tends to be pretty flat as far as favorability. So when we talk mm-hmm. about um, director elections and executive compensation, um, the retail favorability hasn't changed too much over the years. And again, that goes back to uh, the average retail investor is investing in a company that they like. So if they like the company, they're typically going to vote favorably um, for the board um, and for compensation. And also, too, you know, it's an environmental and social type proposal is something that a retail investor likely will understand more than executive compensation or something like that. You know, they're not going to, you know, likely um, dig in um, to the information to understand what the compensation, right. what those comp levels are. But environmental and social is something that is easier to understand. You don't really have to, you know, dig in to the details. Um, so, you know, that's where the favorability might look a little different. 
And and when they do think about voting, they don't go to ISS, right? They would they would maybe talk to their friends or or their broker or or somebody else. Um, I'm, yeah. Right? So um, ISS is only referenced by the institutions. So your retail investors, you know, typically they'll look in the news, they'll look on social media, um, you know, those types um, of avenues to try to figure out how they're going to vote. Um, they can also look in the issuer's uh, proxy materials, which is why um, when we talk about best practices to try to drive retail shareholder engagement, um, one of the things is to have a very clear message that you're putting in front of your um, putting in front of your shareholders so that they understand um, how management would like them to vote and why that is. Um, and also, you know, how a vote favorably towards management for a particular proposal will ultimately benefit the company um, and their shareholdings um, of the company. So keep it simple and, and, and just point, point to, to sort of one key message rather than... Absolutely. Hmm. Um, so, so going back to the point of, so you have... You have some younger investors coming into the market. So what are the best ways to engage um, with investors of any age? So what we like to stress is that uh, no, um, no one method of outreach is going to work for everyone. Everyone is different. Um, so you want to um, have an omni-channel approach to your shareholder outreach. Historically, issuers have focused on both paper and on email um, in order to get their proxy information out to their investors. Um, and those are still, you know, two valid ways to get your information out there. Social media is also starting to play a bigger part where an issuer can target their investors um, on social media and get a message out in front of them. You know, it's really all tied to you want to try to get in front of your investors where they spend their time and your average person in general um, tends to spend a lot of time um, online and on social media. Mm. Whenever I'm working with a company um, and I mentioned targeting shareholders on social media, the first thing I hear is, um, I have an older shareholder base. They're not on social media. And what I'll tell you is everyone's on social media. Uh, so no matter what type of issuer, um, what size, we, um, we consistently get upwards of 80% of the accounts that we're trying to match. We're able to match them um, on the social media network and then um, get an ad out to them either encouraging them to vote. We've had some clients um, that have leveraged social media to try to drive e-delivery consent. So, you know, social media can be used for a few different purposes. But again, it goes back to trying, um, trying a new way to engage um, with your retail investors outside of the historical email and paper methods. So staying uh, with the whole online targeting, um, digital display ads or banner ads are a newer thing that we're doing as well. Mm -hmm. Same basic premise where 
we can upload a custom audience um, and then we can target them um, on various websites through those banner ads. So if you're surfing, you know, Yahoo Finance and you see uh, a banner ad that pops up, uh, we're now able to target shareholders that way as well. Again, you know, going back to um, your your average person spends a lot of time online, so it's trying to trying to get your message out in front of them through that channel. You're listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine, the sound of global investor relations. When I'm talking to an issuer and we're trying to drive retail shareholder engagement, um, again, we want to do the omni-channel approach, try to, um, try to you know, use multiple methods to get our message out to a shareholder. Um, we want to make sure that any message that gets out to them is clear, has some kind of call to action so that the shareholder knows that an action is needed, you know. For that, really, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get the shareholder to open the package and not just throw it out. Because unfortunately, a lot of this stuff just goes right in the garbage. So if we can have a call to action that the shareholder sees right away, can we get that shareholder to take the first step and to open their um, their email or their hard copy? And then finally constant follow-up. So Hmm. we have a lot of issuers that are doing multiple rounds of distributions out to their shareholders. A lot of shareholders won't take action with the first email or first package that they get. But what we've seen is that by us doing multiple follow-ups out to the unvoted population, every time that we do a follow-up out to that unvoted, Someone that did not vote prior votes um, votes when they get that. So, you know, constantly going out to the shareholders definitely seems to help as well. Obviously, from an issuer side, you know, that's something that can get expensive really quick. So you want to make sure that you're understanding your shareholder data and you're trying to target the most impactful shareholders based upon how many shares they own. Because typically, the bulk um, of your accounts are going to be in the lower share ranges, whereas um, you have less accounts in the higher share ranges. But if one of those large accounts in the higher share ranges votes, um, it has more of an impact than a bunch of the smaller accounts voting. So again, it's trying to you know, understand your ownership breakdown and then target your most impactful shareholders in order to achieve your voting goals. Well, that makes sense. You, you start with the biggest and then kind of go down, down the list exactly. from there. I guess in terms of actually convincing people, um, what kind of, I mean, can, they, can it really be tailored? You know, can the, do you tailor for different zip codes or different, I don't know, trading strategies or, or I mean, what do you use? We're talking about data. Um, what sort of data aside from, you know, how, how many shares somebody owns? It's a great question. So um, the population can be bifurcated and then targeted differently. For instance, we have some issuers where 
we will target um, accounts that have a voting history different than accounts that don't have a voting history. So let's say that um, that Brandon Van Manen, I don't have a voting history. The issuer may want to have different messaging um, or target me differently than someone that votes every year. So yes, we can certainly break up the population and then try to message to different segments of shareholders differently. Let's say there is a market pullback. You're going to want to have established connections with your your retail shareholders, especially (laughs) in that kind of situation, um, which I I predict might happen. Yeah. Yeah. What we tell issuers too is is you don't want to wait until you need um, your retail shareholders to vote Hmm. to start your engagement. So you know there are many issuers that every year there's nothing contentious on their agenda. And then all of a sudden, um, they get a shareholder proposal, and they now need to engage their investors on the retail side. Now, if you have been engaging them for several years, driving the engagement um, when you need it is easier. If you're now starting from zero, and you have to, you know, just, um, just drive the basic engagement, it's much harder to do. So issuers definitely have a heightened focus um, on their retail investors and are trying to do outreach outside of proxy in many cases. Again, you know, uh, maybe some kind of investor call um, that um, is just for the retail base or something like that. You know, again, it's trying to trying to drive that engagement throughout the year and not just um, not just once a year when you need them to vote. What else would, would be sort of an off-season um, outreach um, example besides, besides that? Um, we've had some issuers um, that do emails and mailings outside of proxy. It could be about, um, about you know, uh, news on a new product, um, news on um, ESG, uh, practices uh, that are going on, um, leveraging social media okay. to try to drive engagement. You know, it's it's tough because you know issuers are are always going to be mindful um, of their budget. So you know, it's trying to um, be as economical as possible in order to drive that retail engagement. So again, uh, things like social media tend to be a relatively low cost uh, way for an issuer to connect with their shareholders. Okay. Um, Brandon, can we, can we talk about, do you have anything like in mind in terms of a case study where sort of every vote counted a, a retail strategy won the day? Absolutely. So, um, so I can think recently in the past couple of months, um, I had an issuer that I was working with highly retail owned, so above average, where they were trying to pass on a transaction. It was a merger and they had a very short time frame between when between when the mailing went out and their meeting date. So uh, we basically casted a very wide net. We had um, hard copies going out. We had email. We had um, various social media channels, um, Instagram, Facebook, 
uh, LinkedIn, uh, Reddit, basically on all fronts, trying to get the message out via social media. Um, and we also had a live agent calling campaign going on. And that was something where uh, towards the end of the campaign, as we were getting close to the meeting and we were close to getting the amount of shares uh, that we needed voting, um, we were doing multiple rounds of emails out to unvoted shareholders on a daily basis. So again, you know, really trying, um, really trying to drive home the retail uh, vote response was needed. And ultimately they were able to get there. I think it was, like a day or two prior to the meeting. But again, you know, definitely would not have got there if it wasn't for pushing the message out on every channel possible and constantly going back out to that unvoted shareholder base uh, in order to drive the importance of voting. Brandon, you brought up an interesting topic. I'm wondering how how often does that happen these days, Um, that in-person call? from the proxy solicitor. Um, is that a thing? Um, so it does still exist. You know, what I'll say is that the effectiveness of the live agent calls um, has gone down a bit over the years. And you just think, you know, uh, people don't answer their phone. Um, people don't have a landline anymore. So it's becoming harder and harder to get shareholders on the phone. Um, it's still a very effective way to do things. Um, it's also on the costly side. So, most issuers, again, by virtue of the fact that most of their ownership um, is within institutions, most issuers don't have to worry about that. But there are um, quite a few campaigns every year where that live agent voting is implemented in order to either help the issuer get enough shares for quorum um, or to try to um, pass on certain proposal items. Brandon, is there anything else that we should cover um, that we've missed? Um, I think we covered most of it. I mean, um, again, you know, when we talk about uh, retail shareholder engagement, it's important at least for every issuer to understand uh, what their retail ownership is, um, understand, you know, what that means compared to their total outstanding shares. Um, that should be, at the very least, every issuer should have a good pulse on that information. And then again, understanding how those retail investors typically vote and, you know, if there is an opportunity to try to drive engagement, it's in more cases than not, it, uh, it tends to be beneficial for the issuer. And even if it's something where you don't need the retail investors to vote this year because there's nothing contentious on the ballot that can change very quickly so don't wait until the last minute to try to engage with the retail investors um having them engage um and kind of in your pocket or when you need them will just make it you know less of an uphill climb if and when that time comes and that's your ticker podcast my thanks to broadridge's brandon van manen And thanks to you for listening. In Montreal, I'm Jeff Cassette.